for joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Katie Spellman, a sports communications consultant who counts among her clients two of the top 10 women's tennis players in the world. Katie feels her background working in the media is an asset in helping those players. When I'm advising athletes on how to handle the media, I, I hopefully am in a better position having trained as a journalist and worked as a journalist to prepare them for those questions and to understand what the journalist is trying to achieve and why. Katie's work in tennis has included supporting not only players, but also tournaments. My work with Simona and Petra is incredibly reactive to individual weeks and individual matches. Whereas when you're working for a tournament, you're planning for something, you know it's going to happen in these dates, you, you know you can control what's happening um, more. Katie shares a great deal in this episode about her work with Petra Kvitova, from helping the two-time Wimbledon champion become more comfortable speaking English, to assisting Petra as she handled the media attention after suffering a career-threatening injury in a home invasion. You know, she prepared herself mentally, she calmed herself down, and she went in there and she did what she needed to do, and that's how she approaches it. And to be able to do that and and shut out all of the emotion that's going on and every, all the external factors, like it would be very difficult for an ordinary human being to do that, um, but she is able to do that. Earlier this year, Katie started an Instazine called Bestify that highlights women who work in sports. I've honestly felt during the pandemic, being on social media, not only for myself, but for my players, that it had just become so judgmental and negative. And I feel like a lot of the stress that everybody's feeling through this pandemic is being taken out on social media. And I wanted to create somewhere that felt happy and positive and encouraging. As always, show notes for this episode are on credentialsonly.com. And please take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you are listening to this podcast. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with sports communications consultant, Katie Spellman on Credentials Only. Katie, thanks so much for joining me. I want all the juicy details. What's <laughs> it like to go to the Wimbledon Champions Ball? Oh my gosh. Great first question. Um, it was amazing. I think we were still on such a high from Petra having won that it was difficult to take everything in. Um, I was the only female there with Petra on her team at the time. So I got to go and have hair and makeup done in the Wimbledon dressing room. Um, I got the, the kind of full treatment because I was with her there. Um, we got to pick a dress from a rack of beautiful uh, ball gowns. Um, it was absolutely amazing. It was so exciting. Um, we got picked up in a, in a limousine, I think it was, with the whole team um, and driven to the ball. Obviously, Petra was on, you know, one of the top tables, as it were. It was amazing food, um, wine. Uh, it was a real celebration. And Petra, you know, finally was able to... She, Petra's not really the kind of girl to go out and celebrate in a big way, but she got to do that at, you know, at the ball. Um, she got to go up on stage and show off her trophy. Um, yeah, it was really magical. Um, I have some pictures of that evening that Petra actually printed out and framed for me and sent to me as a thank you. It was one of the best, happiest nights of my career, I would say. And one of the quirks of this ball is that it's not like a regular dinner time event this happens late in the evening what is the timeline for the Wimbledon Champions Ball yeah true um so because it's the men's final obviously we had a lovely morning of shopping went out for lunch and then as I said we went into the dressing room to get all dressed up and hair and makeup done um so we kind of took the whole day to get ready whereas you know the men were on court playing a ridiculous final um, and you always have to wait for the male winner to arrive at the ball before the kind of real official things start happening. So, yeah, I, I would guess it was around 11 p.m. by the time Novak, I believe, uh, arrived. Um, I should remember that, shouldn't I? I'm only focused <laughs> on, the, on the female winner. Um, and, yeah, it was a very, very late night. I, I imagine we didn't leave there probably until 2 a.m., 
But that kind of made it way more exciting anyway, to be out so late. And especially for Petra, who goes to bed at 10 o'clock every night, um, to be up past her bedtime celebrating at the Wimbledon Ball doesn't get much better than that. You've mentioned Petra a couple of times. Who is Petra? And how did you come to be with her when she's winning Wimbledon? Yeah, so I was at the WTA on the communications team as um, a senior manager of communications, um, traveling the world about 150 days a year, looking after the top players for all their media, um, working with the tournaments and the sponsors and, um, you know, taking particular care of the players who maybe were a bit more nervous around press and media being, you know, if they're... um, first language wasn't English, for example, Um, they found it a bit more stressful. And I remember in 2010, as I was at the WTA, I had to take Petra, she reached the semifinals um, at Wimbledon in 2010. And I had to take her for an interview with the BBC. She was so nervous, her English wasn't great at that point. And I just remember like feeling bad for her because this was this huge moment and she wasn't able to express herself, like how incredible she was feeling at that time. Um, So I naturally um, kind of started working with her a bit more closely as a member of the WTA at that point. Um, And she's a lovely girl. She's very down to earth, um, very open, very family minded. We just had a natural connection. Um, And it kind of coincided with my husband and I thinking about a move to Canada and me wondering whether I could keep up as much travel with the WTA as I was in Canada and me also wanting to start a family. Um, And so I started thinking about um, leaving the WTA and working for myself and maybe working with a couple of players from the WTA, particularly ones who I had developed a close relationship with. And I literally sat down and and listed um, a few of the players who I thought I would absolutely love to work with and felt that I could really help and Petra was at the top of my list. Um, so I approached her Czech manager at the time um, and said, look, would, would you guys be interested in me um, providing, um, obviously, media training, um, PR support, social media was kind of just coming onto the horizon at that point, um, all of these things. And, and they said, yes, please, like, <laughs> we would love your help, um, which is fantastic. So we started Indian Wells 2011. Um, and she went on to win Wimbledon that year. So it was, it was crazy and it was brilliant. You talked about English as a second language. And that was, that's something that we've seen with a lot of these athletes in particular in tennis. You were very aggressive though. What were some of the measures you took to try to help Petra to open up? Because you saw her personality in dealing with the Czech press, but that wasn't there when dealing with any English speaking press. Yeah, exactly. It's so interesting to listen to a player when they do do their press in the second language and to you, you can tell that it's much more informal already. They're laughing a lot more. They're showing their personality a lot more. And yeah, my goal was to make English press resemble much more Czech press. So I remember we sat on the, the lovely lawn at Indian Wells um, and I had printed out a bunch of press conferences and I printed out Roger Federer's Maria Sharapova's as great examples of um, giving thought behind your answer and giving more detail than, than, not than you need to, but more detail than one might naturally want to give. Because both of those two, I think, are fantastic with the media. Um, and you learn something when you're listening to their press. You learn something about them. And um, so I sat with Petra and, and, and we kind of went through those. I also printed off some not-so-good examples where you know, you could see where there was an opportunity to give a lot more information. Um, and yeah, we, kind of, we, we underlined the things that we liked and talked about things we didn't like. And then literally every, every press conference, poor girl, this sounds awful now. Um, every press conference she then did with the transcript, I would print it out and we would talk about where she could have improved her English, um, you know, wh- wh- which things were good, which things were bad. Um, and yeah, we, we, we did that for a while. Um, I gave her English books to read. Um, before every press conference, I would give an idea in her head of the questions she was maybe likely to be asked so that she could prepare thoughts in English in her head. Um, yeah, we did a lot of work on it. And hopefully uh, now anyone who sees Petra in press um, sees that she's very happy. She's funny. She tells jokes. She feels relaxed. She's honest. She doesn't 
get nervous if someone asks her a question that she's maybe not comfortable giving an answer to. Um, yeah, hopefully that's <laughs> that's what comes across now. You mentioned some books even. What types of books were you getting her to help her with this? Yeah, so I couldn't give her anything too complicated because her English really was not good um, at that point. So I gave her um, like classic children's books like Peter Pan, The Secret Garden, those kind of um, slightly simpler English books. Um, yeah, those were the kind of things. And, and this is a world-class athlete, a Wimbledon champion, obviously having to spend a lot of time on the tennis court, probably doesn't need to invest this time and put herself through this with you. Yet she willfully took you on, chose to go through this. How important is that in your ability to be successful, that buy-in? Oh, hugely. Um, I don't think there's any point in anyone hiring me unless unless they are going to believe that the work they're going to put in is going to benefit them. I think she just because the attention increased so suddenly from 2010, obviously through 2011 and onwards, um, I think she was, it was a big shock for her. Um, and, and not only are players asked to do a lot of press conferences and media interviews, but they're also asked to do, um, player races, as you know, um, which are, um, like appearances, um, autograph sessions, all these things you're asked to do and you're suddenly in the spotlight and she needed English for those things too. So I think she was fully aware it was something that she she needed to work on and she would be able to enjoy herself a lot more doing those things, even interacting with other players. Um, so yeah, she she had full kind of belief in, in, in what I was trying to do with her and um, improved really, really quickly. Yeah. You mentioned Wimbledon ball being kind of a peak experience late in 2016, obviously a much harder time for Petra. Mm -hmm. She was attacked uh, in mm -hmm. her home and used her hand, her playing hand to fend off the attacker who had a knife and uh, yeah. you get woken up at five in the morning with this news. Mm -hmm. What's the immediate response you guys go through from the PR side? And obviously there's yeah. a whole lot going on with her emotionally, physically, but mm -hmm. there is the PR side that needs managing. Can you explain a little bit of what went into that process? Yeah, for sure. So I had actually stayed up until midnight because we needed to announce that she was pulling out of Hotman Cup with a stress fracture in her foot. So I had done that. We had made the, we coordinated with the Australians to do it at that time. So I'd stayed up, um, gone to bed late and, uh, you know, not, not thought anything more of it. So when I was, I have young children. So I was, a, I happened, thank goodness, to be awake earlier than, than perhaps a, <laughs> a luckier person. Um, and my phone had, a million notifications on it and I thought oh that's a strange reaction to a stress factor like <laughs> just a stress factor guys she's gonna be okay anyway it wasn't you know now you have so many notifications from so many different areas of um text messages voice notes whatsapp messages twitter messages instagram dms and you often don't know which one to look at first it wasn't until I got to my whatsapp voice messages that I realized I had a voice message from Mariah and Ball, who's Petra's agent at IMG, and from Petra um, in a very shaky but very strong voice telling me what had just happened. Um, I immediately got on the phone with Mariah, who had been, I think, in Europe, so had been aware of it for longer than I had, understood the situation, uh, got back on the phone with Petra, so the most important thing for me from a PR perspective was to understand exactly what the situation was. She was in the car at this point on the way to the hospital in a rural part of the Czech Republic where she was going to be given um, career-saving hand surgery by an amazing, amazing hand surgeon who happened to be in the Czech Republic. Um, we had to decide what we could share because things were already starting to leak in the Czech media. So we wanted to get out in front of that narrative and tell them facts. So we, every step of the way, I very hastily um, put together a news list because I was already being contacted by news media. It's very different 
um, scenario to winning Wimbledon when you're being contacted by the sports media. But we were now being contacted by the front of the newspapers because it was obviously such a horrific story. So very hastily compiled a list of emails to whom I was going to be sending updates every few hours that day. Um, and then we, yeah, we, I, I started sharing as much information as I, I, as I could both before and after she was in surgery. And then there was a press conference, uh, very quickly after heavily bandaged. Yeah, that was a really difficult one. Um, I think Petra was probably still in shock at that point, but it was obviously shortly before Christmas that this happened, which made it even harder. Um, and she decided she, she loves Christmas and, um, Christmas is a, a big deal for her. She's very family, family orientated, as I said. So she decided she wanted to deal with the media so that she could then go and have a quiet Christmas. Um, so yeah, it was two days after the surgery she went and yeah, it's a very famous image of her coming into the press conference room in Prague with this huge, huge bandage on her left hand, um, and she sat and she she answered the questions and um, was, you know, very honest, um, very scared, obviously, but absolutely determined that the message she wanted to give in that press conference was that she was going to make a comeback to tennis. And it wasn't six months before she did that, which at the time probably felt like six years. And now looking back, it's, oh, my goodness, that really did go very quickly. But working through her on the communications piece, as she's building back to make that return to competition. What were the goals you guys were hoping? And and you were fortunate, Petra being Petra, so popular in the locker room, tournaments and players were sending tributes throughout that downtime. So you're kind of organically in the news, but ultimately you had to be out there with, here's how we're doing. Yeah. First of all, the re- Petra did go, want to go very quiet on social media and in terms of outward communication um, in the first few months of her recovery and this is just classic Petra, it was mostly because she didn't want to get anyone else's hopes up. She was thinking about other people, which Yiri would tell you that my famous thing, my favorite thing about when she was in the hospital was she really wanted to give them their Christmas presents. And she was worried about giving them their Christmas presents while she was in hospital. Um, the same, in the same way, she didn't want to give fans false hope by sharing too much about her comeback in case she wasn't able to come back. She was okay with secretly, you know, wishing and hoping she was going to be able to come back, but she didn't want to let anyone down by, by building up their hopes too much. Um, so she did go very quiet um, for the first few months. And, we, you know, we, we made a, a team-wide decision that that was how we were going to do it. But as you say, the response from the other players was absolutely amazing. And obviously you, you saw lots and lots of the messages of support on social media, but she also got a lot of private messages and flowers and um, the tennis community really, really came together for her. And Indian Wells produced that huge banner with all the fans able to sign it. So although it was a period obviously of great worry, it was also quite a lovely period just to see um, how people hold her in such high regard. So we slowly, as she she worked, her surgeon would tell you she worked so hard on her recovery and her rehab. She, the surgeon, you know, most patients when they come, they, you know, they have, they get told they have to do certain exercises when they hurt their back, you know, they'll kind of do it and not, not really do it very properly. Petra, did every single exercise probably, you know, 10 times more than she needed to because she has a winning mentality and that's how an athlete approaches recovery. So she did an incredible job on her recovery um, to the point that she started um, being able to hold a racket in her hand for the first time, hold a drink for the first time. I remember when she had her first manicure for the first, like for the first time she would send me pictures and she's kept all these pictures by the way, in case she, she writes a book at some point she has, she has a really good running record of that time. Um, so these things started happening and every time, you know, she did something new with her hand again, there was such great cause for hope. Um, she was then able to hit soft balls um, for the first time. Um, Wilson were actually originally going to make her a lighter racket so she could shadow swing with a lighter racket. But in the end, she, the recovery went so much 
faster that she ended up using her own racket with softballs. And she slowly but surely started being able to do all these things again. And every time she did it, it was like a, a miracle. Um, and then a comeback really did seem to be on the cards. And it just happened that Roland Garros was, was the tournament that she, you know, Petra loves the Grand Slams. She's a, she's a big tournament player. And, um, you know, obviously it may have made sense to, to come back at a small tournament, but it didn't work in the timeline. What worked in the timeline was, was Roland Garros. And that was where she decided to do it. She hadn't done any press for a long time. We decided to consolidate everything and do everything in Paris in front of the world's media who were there. Um, we did a huge amount of preparation for that press conference. Um, we role-played, we wrote down every single question because as I say, she hadn't done anything. Um, but she came back. The room couldn't have felt more supportive towards her. The journalists were thrilled to see her and she, she gave like an incredible press conference. I was really, really proud of her. And we talked about six months getting to that point and then an incredible six weeks of returning to competition in Paris, winning a title in England and then returning to Wimbledon. Uh, and throughout that, it's just probably way more heightened in terms of all the media attention and all the emotions for what she's going through because of what she had went through. Mm -hmm. How do you keep her focused on what she needs to do? Cause it is part of her job in that media environment to stay on message and tell those stories. So what was that period like for you? Yeah. I mean, Petra is such a professional. I get my lead from her. She, she's amazing. Um, she's very calm and it's funny how when you work with an elite athlete and they're so good at what they do on the court, they do so many other things outside the court so well. Um, and so for anyone else to go into that press conference room, it would just would have been terrifying, but she took it all in her stride and she almost approached it like she approaches a tennis match. You know, she prepared herself mentally, she calmed herself down and she went in there and she did what she needed to do. And that's how she approaches it. And to be able to do that and, and shut out all of the emotion that's going on and every, all the external factors, like it would be very difficult for an ordinary human being to do that. Um, but she is able to do that. Um, she had her parents in Paris. She had the bodyguard that had been assigned to her in Paris. She had the French top, top hand surgeon in the world um, happened to be uh, French. So he came, um, obviously her hand surgeon himself, he came. She had all these people who had played such a big part in her recovery in Paris with her. And I think it she just, it just felt such a special occasion to her and such a happy occasion that she wouldn't let anything stand in the way of that. In Wimbledon, it was a hard balance because now you've kind of gotten over the hump of mm -hmm. you've returned, yet mm -hmm. this was a more special place. But Grand Slams are tough, and you kind of have to get back to business as usual if you're really going to compete. How was that balance for you and for the whole team once you got back to Wimbledon? Yeah, it was really tricky because she then went and won Birmingham, which obviously was incredible and um I think Petra would tell you like maybe it happened too soon almost um it was too good to be true and it was difficult to to take all of that in having feared that she would never play tennis again and then suddenly be back winning a premier tournament on grass it, it was almost unbelievable even for her and so I think the emotions maybe would too high because of that. And then when she got to Wimbledon, where she's so desperate always to do well, it's the highlight on her calendar. She has so much history there. She's won it twice. She knows that she tries too hard at Wimbledon because it means so much. And I think having had the emotion of coming back and winning in Birmingham so close to Wimbledon, I think it was probably, she was just, it was probably too much going on in her head. Um, so she was unfortunately unable to, to keep those emotions in check, such a difficult thing to do as a player in normal circumstances, let alone, you know, having gone through that. So yeah, she was super disappointed not, not to have performed better at Wimbledon that year. 
2018 performed very well, won five titles, but there's a, a piece of 2018 that I really want to dive into with you. Um, there's a, a fabulous journalist, Bonnie Ford, mm-hmm. and she wrote um, it, it, just an incredible story. How did that come about? Yeah, Bonnie Ford's amazing. She's one of the most professional, hardest working journalists I've ever dealt with. And she's an awesome human being as well. Um, And I knew Bonnie a little bit. And I knew that she and Petra would get along very well. Um, But Bonnie also, you know, was determined to write. she, She wanted to write the story and was determined to write the story. And she went to the Czech Republic Um, and spent quite a lot of time with Petra one-on-one. And they had some wonderfully deep conversations. Um, Petra took her for coffee, obviously insisted on paying for the coffee and looked looked after Bonnie. I think she even gave her a ride there in her car, like took Bonnie under her wing and they had this wonderful time together. They then had many follow-up interviews. Bonnie probably spent I want to say six months. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that. Um, Learning the story, being in the Czech Republic, speaking to Petra's parents, to um, Miroslav Chernyshek, who used to run Prostyov, where Petra first went when she became pro, um, did an investigative journalism job on on Petra, which which her story merited, and, and took such pride and paid such respect to the story. Um, and you know, you've read it, it turned out brilliantly. And I don't think I would have wanted anyone else to tell that, that story. Um, so yeah, Petra really enjoyed the experience. She built up so much trust. She felt comfortable speaking to Bonnie. I know Bonnie would tell you that it's probably one of the favorite pieces she's, she's ever written. Um, it, it was in, um, the American sports writing book. Best of the year, yes. Exactly. Um, it, it, it was very, yeah, it had a great response. So Important to note uh, to our listeners, go to credentialsonly.com and in the show notes, I will link to the story. It is well worth your time to read. Um, there's kind of a two-way sh- street that as a PR person, you're, you're really at the intersection of. Because one, there are a lot of journalists besides Bonnie who want to, get that access and tell that story. So you've got to navigate that side of it. And then secondly, you've got to work with Petra to make her okay with this and to know that there's going to be investigative journalism happening on her and her life and her story and her parents and the surgeon and all these people close to her are going to be talked to about her. And Mm -hmm. for a private person, that's a lot of exposure. So as that PR person, how do you manage the number of people who want to tell the story to figure out who can do it and then sell the athlete on allowing it. Yeah, I think it's a good one. And I do think it's really sad that journalism has changed so much in the last 10 years, I would say. And it's become a lot more diluted through social media, I think. And I think journalists, in a way, have become lazy to the extent that they can get write a story off whatever a player puts on on Twitter. Um, so actually the approaches from work for you know significant publications with a with a great reputation who have a specific idea about what they want to write and show intent to like put a lot of you know thought and work into it um, that they don't come along that often anymore. Unfortunately, um, yes, you know, we still have many interview requests, but in terms of like the big opportunities, you know, when I was, even when I was still at the WTA, we were doing such meaty one-on-one interviews, cover stories with our players that, that unfortunately for, for a variety of different reasons just aren't happening anymore. So when an opportunity with Bonnie Ford comes along for ESPN magazine and you know that person and you know they're going to do a good job and they have a great reputation, you, you take it and you, you, you sell that to your player as this is a good one. Trust me on this. You're going to like her. And, and sometimes I don't believe I did this with Petra because I think she had already met Bonnie. Sometimes I would introduce Petra to a journalist if we were later going to 
have an interview or do something further down the line, I would make sure there was an introduction and, you know, obviously get a feel for the relationship and how it was going to go. Um, but as I say, um, there isn't that much writing around anymore where, where journalists have the opportunity to get deep into a player's story like that. And convincing Petra to go along with that. Yeah. Um, she's, well, hopefully she, she trusts me enough, um, to know that, you know, I have a good relationship with, with Bonnie and, you know, a, a lot of the other journalists. And, um, I think she was also at a point enough time had passed, um, that she felt more ready, um, to share her story. Definitely. That took some time. Um, she, yeah, she needed to process the whole thing in her own head before she was ready to talk to other people about it. And, and obviously healing physically, but also mentally, um, takes, takes some time after going through something like that. Um, so bon the Bonnie thing came along at the right time, I would say. And she, yeah, she was, she was ready to, to talk by then. You have added another top 10 player and now a Wimbledon champion as well in Simona Halep. How do you balance looking after the best interests of two players who ultimately are competing? And also, how are you so lucky that they have not played each other since you started working with both of them? Right. I, I know. Um, I, I can't answer that second question. I have no idea, but it's a miracle. Another miracle. Um, yeah, well, I guess I guess because they're both seated you know, fairly high, there's that, that reduces the chances, but yes, I have been very lucky on that front. Can't quite believe it. Um, what was your first question? <laughs> I've forgotten your first question now. <laughs> You've got two top 10 players, two major yeah. champions. How do you yeah. balance working with both of them? Yeah. Um, good question. And, um, they're both, they're both very human. And, um, they're both very down to earth and they both don't have a big ego. And I think that helps. Um, they both appreciate the work that I can do for them. And for both of them, it is taking away a stressor, which is having so much, um, you know, uh, demand for, uh, PR and social. Um, so I think they, they're both very professional as well. Um, and they know that that's a part of their job um, that they need help with. So I think they both approach me in the same way. Um, they understand my role. Um, they understand what I'm there for. Um, they're grateful and they are easy to work with and good people, as I said. Um, and I think they also have a respect for each other. Uh, which also helps. I think they, they are very similar in the, the way they approach and respect the sport. Um, and all of those things contribute to it, it being a success. Um, we, I never talked to Petra about Simona and I never talked to Simona about Petra. They're a really lovely respect for each other. For you as their PR manager, you're, working with them on, on an international stage and they're very successful within the sport of tennis, but they're massively popular in their homelands. Mm -hmm. And unless you've been working very hard on a side project here, I don't believe that you're fluent in Czech or Romanian. So how do you, you haven't heard me in the box while they're playing Pete? <laughs> <laughs> I how have do you what manage I describe. That? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I have what I describe as match check and working <laughs> on my match Romanian. Um, good question. Um, so on a certain level, I'm involved with the media that Petra does in the Czech Republic. Um, but she does have a um, Czech um, kind of PR guy who manages the Fed Cup team who, like, if there is a press conference in Prague, obviously, I'm not going to be there. Um, he helps manage that side of things. So I'm involved, you know, I have a lot of her sponsors, for example, that I'm, I'm involved with on a daily basis, but in terms of her, if a Czech media person comes with a Czech only question, then I, I do have someone in the Czech Republic that um, can help me handle that. And similar with um, Simona in Romania, that is someone on the ground in Romania who can help. So in terms of me having to be 
like physically present in Romania and the Czech Republic, I, I don't need to be, thank goodness. Um, especially with COVID that would be so difficult to, to do. Um, so yeah, I do have some help on that front. I'm happy to say. <laughs> it also is a different lens. And you talked about getting off the sports pages and I get the sense that because of their popularity in their homelands, they get outside of the sport pages when they do things, it's, it's news and bordering on gossip. How, do you manage that piece of this with them? Yeah, so it was obviously, uh, you know, a good example is that Simona unfortunately tested positive for um, COVID last week. And it's just something that you know as an athlete who is so famous in Romania, um, you know, if she is seen going to a hospital, for example, for a test, you know, then then that's quite easily going to leak to the media. Um, so always my policy on that front is get in front of the narrative. You control the narrative by being the first person to tell the story in your own words, in the way that you want to tell it and controlling the message. So obviously, you know, it was funny actually, after we had announced it, um, Prince William, it came out that Prince William had tested positive in April. And my initial reaction was like, why, why would you, why, why are you telling us now? Um, so I think of as a person of public interest, you know, people would want to know that. And the, the thing with COVID-19, it's everywhere and it, there's no shame attached to it. Um, she hadn't done anything wrong. It wasn't like she had hosted an illegal party. So for us, it was, it was kind of a no brainer. We need to share this information. The public deserve to know, or they're going to ask questions. Um, so that's the approach that we try to take with everything, with an injury. Um, why hide the injury? You know, um, always be as honest and open as, as possible is, is our approach. And that's our approach as human beings, but also from a PR perspective. What's the day-to-day -day like for you when you're at a big event with Emma Grand Slam or a WTA Premier event in terms of managing that PR? Because obviously there's all kinds of stuff you can do outside of a tournament. But once you're in the tournament mode, you've got to focus on playing the matches. Yeah, exactly. It's slightly, it's a different pace. So well, obviously both of my players love to do all of their pre-tournament media and appearances before the tournament starts. They are both players who, as soon as the first round matches are being played, they want to be focusing on their tennis. So we do a huge amount of work in the days leading up to the tournament almost too much, but just to get it all done. Um, and then they're free as soon as they start playing, just to think about playing. And I like that approach. I think, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Some players are more relaxed and, you know, will will happily do things during, during the tournament week. I think men, maybe um, some of the ATP players are probably more relaxed from that front, but both of them um, like to take that approach. And obviously now I, now I know that that's the approach they like to take. That's the way we organize everything. Um, so we would do a lot of work in those, say, three, four days before a Grand Slam. And then during the Grand Slam, um, everything is about the match. And then obviously they have their post-match requirements, um, which they will do. And then, you know, we have some social media posts to do. But um, it's a fairly calm environment once the tennis has started. You say that, yet there's a volume of requests that come in. How many requests are you usually getting? And what's that post-match routine like? Because I, yeah. I think people see players come off the court and then maybe see a clip on YouTube, but they don't know what else is going on in that post-match press routine for these players. Definitely. So if we're at a Grand Slam tournament, um, the Grand Slams will have a brilliant army of um, media relations people um, putting together all the interview requests. Now there are broadcast requests and then there are print requests, there are radio requests, and they have this brilliant person who funnels all of those requests together to the extent that I literally get presented with a list of, of you know, whether they're mandatory requests or non-mandatory requests. And um, I, we get to kind of pick and choose which ones we do. Um, I'm definitely of the party who likes to do as much as we can um if if one of the players has come off and got a bit of an injury or needs an ice bath or needs extra treatment then obviously we take that into consideration when we're saying yeses and nos um 
some of them might involve, <laughs> sometimes it's as silly as they might involve a lot more walking than other requests. Um, but it comes down to giving priority to obviously host broadcasters, home country press, um, and literally going down the list and prioritizing um, who who we think is, you know, deserving of more time. But as I say, I will always try and encourage my players to give more yeses than noes because I understand the importance, especially during a Grand Slam, of speaking to the media. Um, and and they do too. And, you know, they're, they're hopefully, you would agree, Pete, um, they're, they're pretty open to yeses. <laughs> <laughs> I can attest to this personally from experience. <laughs> yes. Often that list is about how many, I mean, obviously it changes based on who you're playing oh, and later in the I'd tournament, maybe but it's 15, something in the region of 15. And obviously a lot of those are consolidated then into press conferences, but yeah, it can be as long as 15. Um, so yeah, sometimes shorter than that, but yeah, that I think there's probably a pre, um, elimination process that goes on, as I say, through that army of media people who are already on site funneling everything down to me. So when it gets, by the time it gets to me, it's probably already been filtered somewhat. Um, but yeah, I would say 10 to 15 probably requests for, for every match at a Grand Slam. A challenge that you faced in doing this is that you are not necessarily there. And so that Australian Open match that you're one, having to watch and, and be on the edge of your seat for, but then two, manage those requests. That could be at two in the morning, three in the morning for you. <sighs> Managing from afar has to be one of the bigger challenges you face. Yeah, actually, you know what? It's, it's really not just because they are so professional, so established. I have been working with them long enough that we're in a pretty good routine. Plus, I have very good relationships with um, the people on the ground, which is really important. Um, plus I have three young children who keep me awake at all sorts of random hours of the night anyway. So I'm very used <laughs> to sleep deprivation. <laughs> um, so all of those factors help. Obviously for me, I think the hardest thing not being there is not being able to speak to the player directly in person before they go into press and just helping them feel better if they've had a bad loss or, you know, briefing them in person on a, on a difficult subject. But I am in contact. WhatsApp is an absolute godsend. I'm in contact with them through WhatsApp. Um, Mariah Ball will often be with Petra um, at the Grand Slams. Uh, I'm not at. Um, Simone has got a wonderful supportive team around her. So they've both got amazing teams who, who help them out from a, from a, you know, emotional support side. Um, and yeah, everything else I, I do on my phone. How nervy is it for you when they are playing? And is it worse oh. in person or on television? <laughs> I am not good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I get very nervous. I don't know why it's silly. As I, as I say, I've been working with them so long. I should know by now that Petra likes to play three sets. <laughs> so does Simona. Um, <laughs> no, I, I get very nervous. And my husband always says, why are you so nervous? It shouldn't matter as much as it does. But it does matter because, you know, um, you are part of their team and you do know them very well. And you also know how much winning and losing affects them. Um, and you just really want them to have a great day and be happy. Um, so yes, it, it, it's tricky. I do being in Canada sometimes can be tricky to find feeds, which is really annoying. Um, but I do always try and watch every single match. And if I can't, then I'll, I'll then I'll watch the scores, but every single time they play, I am, I am there. You are with two of the top 10 players. How common is this amongst players on either tour to have this type of individual PR support? Yeah, I would say the top players do tend to have someone um, doing their PR and social media with them. Um, some players like to be more involved on social media and some less so. I mean, it's such a huge time commitment now in order to do it properly. And not only do they want to share personal things with fans, but they now have sponsors who you know, in their sponsorship contracts now, they have a huge number of um, social media posts that they need to do. And they're often quite complicated. It involves downloading big files that the player wouldn't necessarily have access to after a match. Um, so that, for the top players who have sponsors and, um, you know, who are busy, um, I believe they, they need someone to, to help them out. Um, so I would say, you know, obviously the top 10 
probably have someone who who helps them on that side um, and then probably wouldn't go too much lower in the rankings because it you know it's another cost it's another team member it's another person traveling with them if they do travel um but yeah certainly the top guys would have someone you've also been part of this sports media world from a few different angles uh, including in tennis from the tournament side how has that been different through your work at rogers cup or the connecticut open than working with the players yeah, I actually love working with the tournaments because it's something significant to get your teeth into. It's a team effort, whereas obviously I work for myself. I work with individuals. I love working, being back in that team environment and having longer term goals to set out. My work with Simona and Petra is incredibly reactive to individual weeks and individual matches, whereas when you're working for a tournament, you're planning for something you know is going to happen in these dates. You, you know you can control what's happening um, more. And I love um, being involved in the social media side for tournaments. I love um, using time with players to great effect and creating fun content. Um, so the content that I produce for, for Simona and Petra is very different to the content that I produce for tournaments. Um, obviously, Connecticut Open, um, the Eclipse video that we did there and the Shot Clock video that we did there. Like, I just absolutely love kind of coming up with the idea and then seeing it through to fruition. Being in, involved in that whole process is something that I really enjoy um, and taking the players out of their comfort zone to a certain extent. But then, then seeing the end result and actually appreciating that that it was it was worth it. Uh, of um, course, I'll link to both those videos in the show notes as well because they're they were very creative and well done. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, I had fun. And then we did um, for Rogers Cup. We did media training um, last year, two thousand nineteen, um, and we. I feel like the videos that do really well on the content side are videos that kind of have a peg. Um, so the eclipse was relevant because there was an eclipse during a tennis tournament. It was like, oh my gosh, are they going to play tennis during the eclipse? Like, how are they going to handle this? And everyone was affected by the eclipse and therefore it was, you know, relevant. Um, same thing, the shot clock was a new rule that was being introduced at the US Open by the USDA and no one really knew what it was going to mean, what it was going to look like. So we took that that new rule and had some fun with it. And actually, it, again, it was informative, like the Eclipse video. Um, same thing with media training. Media training is a big part of what the ATP and the WTA do um, in their rookie hours with players. Um, they teach them. And I actually took some of the, you know, real advice that they are given in that media training and then put a funny spin on it with with the players um and therefore not only was it hopefully funny but people were actually learning something from it um so yeah that that's the kind of content that that we have fun producing prior to your time at the wta you were yourself a journalist working at the sunday mirror and then at the times how much has that work as a journalist, informed what you do as a PR professional? Yeah, massively, I think. They, they always call it going to the dark side, which I think is a bit harsh on, on PR people. Um, but I, yeah, I went to journalism school. I trained as a journalist. I worked on national newspapers in England and always wanted to write about sports. So I knew from the journalist perspective um, the kind of questions that I would want to ask from an athlete. And I knew what the end result of those questions was going to be. Therefore, when I'm advising athletes on how to handle the media, I, I hopefully am in a better position having trained as a journalist and worked as a journalist to prepare them for those questions and to understand what the journalist is trying to achieve and why. Um, so I think that's a really important um, transfer of, of information. You were a deputy football editor at the Times, but you were also a night editor. And that has to be one of the more unique things of that deadline pressure of all these things happening really simultaneously, some affecting the other, some kind of completely independent. What do you remember of that experience? And are there any particular nights of just crazy breaking news that have well, stayed with you? 
It was amazing. I absolutely loved it. I think you either thrive in that environment or you clam up and, and go home probably. Um, yeah, sports pages on a live football night, a Champions League night, a World Cup night. Like literally you've got 20 empty pages and you have to fill them within, you know, half an hour and everything can turn on a late goal being scored, um, someone coming, producing an amazing comeback. So you have to be completely happy with thinking on your feet. It's actually really good training for life um, to put yourself in that situation. And we did that every single night on sport. So the front end of the paper would have, you know, one or two little slots here and there to fill as deadline was approaching. We would literally have the whole of the sports section to fill. And that was a massive adrenaline rush for me. Um, I loved it. Uh, the writers, so I was an editor at that point, the writers who were on the ground filing, I have just so much admiration for. And they would file, you know, in pieces. So they would, they would file a middle, an end, and then a beginning. And the beginning was always the bit that if they had to rewrite that, you know, that's the, the bit that they would rewrite. And, and you would see, obviously, we were at the time, these guys were like the best in the business, but you would see their copy come in beautifully. Um, and thank God you needed very little editing on the copy at that point. But of course, I'm, I'm then writing headlines and choosing pictures and choosing captions. And all of this is happening um, with a very, very quick turnaround. Uh, absolutely loved it. Brilliant uh, thing to do, you know, early on in my career and to learn a lot of life lessons from. A massive pivot here in the type of media that you were producing, going from those newspapers to something you're doing now. What is an Instazine? <laughs> oh, um, so I love Instagram. I think it's a great platform. Um, I think that um, there can be a sense of community built up on Instagram, maybe that there can't be, that, well, that I haven't felt from the other platforms, certainly during the pandemic. I feel like Twitter became a bit shouty and a bit negative. I feel like people have stopped really using Facebook as a kind of, um, uplifting, supportive place. Um, and I feel like Instagram, there's definitely just that sense that people are more supportive and more, you can follow who you want to follow on Instagram and, and be more encouraging towards it. So I've honestly felt during the pandemic, being on social media, not only for myself, but for my players, that it had just become so judgmental and negative. And I feel like a lot of the stress that everybody's feeling through this pandemic is being taken out on social media. And I wanted to create somewhere that felt happy and positive and encouraging. And I was also painfully aware that many people are out of jobs. And those people who want to even start their careers who are just finishing university thinking how on earth am I ever going to get a foot in the door um I thought it would be really nice to share something positive for those people so I decided that um I would create an instazine which is basically a cute little magazine on Instagram that you can scroll through so it makes it the idea was to be time saving for people um makes it easier to scroll through and swipe um and I wanted it to be aimed at giving career advice to women, um, uh, women supporting women in the sports industry and just to, to uplifting people and giving them some hope that, you know, um, there, there are ways and means to get into the industry. So yeah, that was where it came from. It's called best of five. Who are some of the people you've had so far? Yeah, so I, I started it off with Anne Worcester, who was the former CEO of the WTA and now at UTR, um, Universal Tennis, and is a great mentor of mine, a hugely important woman in my life who taught me all about um, supporting other women and, and the importance of that in the sports industry. She, she definitely was at the forefront of, um, you know, uh, paving a way for women in sports. Um, so she, she was my first one. Um, I'm having Stacey Allister on next week, which I'm really excited about. Um, I've had Eloise Tyson from Wimbledon. I've had Courtney from the WTA. Um, I'm trying to, to have both um, media people, but also people in broadcast. Um, I'm trying to give like a 360 of the industry. Um, and yeah, it, it's just, it's basically... I'm basically showing that everyone started off somewhere. 
um, with, you know, with no reason to believe that they were going to be able to make it to the top of the sport, but they have. Um, and they've, the common thread through all of the interviews, interviewees has been hard work, determination, and never taking no for an answer. Um, so really, I've, I've learned so much doing it. I've really enjoyed doing it. And I'll definitely, definitely continue and try and um, devote some more time to it when I can. Speaking of devoting time when you can and everything that comes with having a life outside of your work, you've talked about being a mom of three. And how do you balance that with what you have to do for work? And how has it maybe changed your perspective on the time that you have for work? Yeah, it's been really hard. I'm not going to lie. The last six months. Um, so my children are seven, five and two. Um, so when we went into lockdown in March, um, I had to homeschool the seven and five year old um, while having a two year old around my ankle. Well, sorry, one. She's not two yet. She's two next week. Uh, while having a one year old around my ankles, while trying to work while my husband was working, while doing a house renovation, it was, um, it was a lot. Um, I am lucky that I work for myself and therefore I'm, I'm used to a certain extent of juggling. Um, and I have always tried as far as possible to take my kids with me when I'm traveling. Uh, Jack was with me as a baby at Wimbledon when he was four months old. Poppy was at the U S open when she was three months old. Matilda was in Indian Wells when she was three months old. So um, that is the way I have found it easiest is to involve my kids somewhat in, in my travel. Um, and they do, they, they do know that I watch tele uh, tennis on television a lot. And they do know that I do something where I'm saying something for Petra and Simona occasionally, <laughs> but they don't quite understand exactly what I do, but they, I like the fact that they're aware that I do have to work and that mums do work and it's important for them um, not only to contribute to the family, but also for them as, as a person to have, you know, a, a worth and something that they is important to them. So I definitely try to teach my kids that. I want to close as I close every episode with the set pieces. These are a half dozen questions that everybody is subjected to when they grace me with their time. And I'm going to start podcasts or newsletters that you use to stay informed and, and keep learning? Yeah, I'm terrible. I do not have a lot of time for podcasts and newsletters, as I say. Um, but I'm trying to have a mental health walk every evening now when the kids are in bed. And during that mental health walk, although I do do Peloton power walks, um, I actually want to start listening to um, podcasts during that time. So I did listen to a very good one that I can recommend. It's called The Burnout, and it's very relevant to how people are feeling somewhat coming out of the other side of COVID, although I know we're fully in a second wave. But now, certainly for me, with the kids being back at school, I feel like I'm somewhat coming out the other side of it. Um, it's a Brene Brown podcast, um, and it's called Burnout, and it's based off a book called Burnout by the Nagowski sisters. And it's incredibly relevant to how a lot of my colleagues and friends and fellow mums are feeling um, having gone through everything we've gone through in 2020. Who are your most valuable follows, the posts you don't want to have missed on social media? Yeah, so I love Twitter and I've, I feel bad that I said Twitter was always negative. It's not. And I do learn a lot from Twitter. Um, Jess Smith, um, who posts brilliantly about all things sports and social media. And Jen Hartman, who runs social media at John Deere. Those are two women who I feel use Twitter as a way to educate and share about social media. Um, so I love those two. What are a couple of books you'd recommend that people read? Untamed by Glennon Doyle. I, I, I managed to read it during the pandemic. It is absolutely fantastic for empowering women um, to believe in their sense of purpose and to stop listening to other people. Uh, it's really energizing and it gave me lots of great ideas. What are you streaming in terms of television? Uh, do you know what? I'm streaming <laughs> Shit's Creek. Uh, I don't know why I didn't watch it before now. Uh, <laughs> perfect, perfect pandemic viewing because they're short episodes. You don't have to concentrate too hard. Um, and it is 
hilariously funny. It took me a couple of episodes to to get to know the characters, um, but I love it. Brilliant, as they say, light relief. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Um, I have many. I was a sports nut. I would sit up on the sofa with my dad watching the Commonwealth Games in the middle of the night. I would literally set my alarm to get up and watch any sport. Didn't matter what it was. Obviously, tennis was one of them, but anything. I loved uh, the Olympics, the Commonwealth Games, anything where you saw an athlete competing for their country and wanting something so bad. Um, So I'd say that from like a being with my dad on the sofa perspective. And then Wimbledon, um, I used to go as a kid once a year. We got tickets. I think we got them through my school because I know it's difficult to get Wimbledon tickets. Um, I would know exactly the entrances and the exits of every court. I didn't watch any live tennis. I got so many autographs. I was a professional autograph hunter. Um, I got Martina Navratilova's towel. Um, I got Grant Connell's racket, Mark Golner's hat that he used to wear backwards. I would stalk the grounds for tennis players. So <laughs> that's how I grew up at Wimbledon. <laughs> so then getting to go to the Wimbledon ball, I can see why that was even more special for you. Exactly. Yeah. Wimbledon has always been a huge part of my life. <laughs> my last question. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? I do. I'm very good at keeping my kids' credentials because they're super cute. And I've got them with like babies. And then obviously you can see them as they get older on the credentials, um, which is cool. I'm not so good at keeping my own ones, but I definitely keep the kids' ones. And sometimes they take them to school for show and shares. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Katie, I really appreciate all the insights. Uh, Definitely encourage people to check out best of five on your Instagram and best of luck to you as you ramp up for a soon season of 2021 in tennis. Thank you, Pete. I really appreciate Katie taking the time to join me for this episode. If you have not already gone to credentialsonly.com for the show notes, I really encourage you to do so in particular to read that Bonnie Ford piece that was written about Petra Kvitova's recovery. It really is an incredible story to read. While you're on the website, please leave us your email and sign up to get notified when we have a new episode to share. Also, if you haven't done so already, please leave a review and rating on your favorite site for podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Mike Miche for editing Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.